Well, we're back. We're back in the book of Isaiah. It's been a couple months since we've been in the book of Isaiah. Uh, so Isaiah 48, if you want to turn in your pew Bibles, it's on page 608. Isaiah 48. And for some context, <laughs> you might need a little context. Um, chapters 40 through 48, um, it's God's prophecy to his people that they will go into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. As verse 10 says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Listen, this passage is so critical to your life as a Christian because every Christian experiences the furnace of affliction. And when we're in the middle of affliction, we tend to wonder, where are you, God? Have you stopped loving me? Do you not care? This chapter helps us to place our utmost confidence in God's love for us. That's the title of this sermon. Our passage is a long one. We will take it in bites. Let me pray. Father, we, um, we are your people. And because of Christ, that can never change. Your mercy and your grace are that astounding. Were it not so, you would cease to be God. But you are God, and you are glorious, and you are good. And our confidence rests not in who we are, but in who you've made us to be. May this truth ring true to us. May you nurture and encourage us. May you teach us to prosper, we pray. Amen. You know, I can pretty clearly remember uh, my atheistic mindset that I treasured so much in my mid-twenties. I was so confident there was no God and that Christianity was a sham. Why? Because of Christians. I mean, just look at a lot of them. Many of the Christians I knew, they just, they just look like hypocrites. How can there be a God? Just look at his so-called people. Now, this is where it gets interesting. You see, because in chapter 48, we're left to conclude the opposite. God must exist. Just look at his people. Look at how he sticks with them through thick and thin. Look at how steadfast his love is. And listen, if you're on the outside looking in, my hope for you this morning is that you'll see God in a new light. I hope you marvel and think, if God really is this loving and glorious, I want to know him. For the rest of us, there are two issues that we have as Christians that this passage addresses. First, there is our confidence, or lack thereof. And second is our tendency towards nominalism. Both of these issues come to a fore because Isaiah answers the most important question. Why does God put up with us? Why? Christian, have you ever found yourself wondering why God hasn't kicked you to the curb? You want to live out the fruit of the Spirit, but every day there it is, the flesh, the sin nature that wages war every day inside you. 
And some days you begin to wonder, will I ever change? And your confidence in God's commitment to you begins to get chiseled away. God has to be so fed up with you. Isaiah also addresses our tendency towards nominalism. Nominal means in name only. The so-called people of God in Isaiah's day took delight in the temple, but not the God of the temple. They marveled at the many blessings of God, but not in the God who blesses. They enjoyed the life that God had provided them, but they enjoyed not the God who gives life. And so they lived as those who take the grace of God for granted. And many Christians do this today. I confess a tendency in my own life towards nominalism. And how can we know if you're one who is taking the grace of God for granted? Well, if all you want out of God is his acceptance without his transformation, you are receiving God's grace in vain. Our passage today speaks warning against living as nominal Christians. This morning, we're all going to be challenged to look a little bit deeper at our own sinfulness, to see how none of us are the people we know we should be, let alone the people God has called us to be. And yet, God does not kick us to the curb. Why? How come he doesn't get to the point where he says, enough already, good riddance, I like how Ray Ortland Jr., who I'm greatly indebted to this morning, I like what he has to say. Listen, God proves that he is God by his grace to sinners. If you are in Christ, whatever God is doing in your life right now is not an experiment that he might abandon if he gets fed up with you. You need to know that God would have to stop being God before he would quit on you. And why would God never quit on you? Because you're a good Christian? Because you try? No. That's what we're going to be investigating this morning. What we'll see this morning is that your salvation is not about you. No, it's about the glory of God. So this morning we're going to try to answer the question, what is the Christian life about? At least part of the Christian life. Our outline is two points. I borrowed it from my seminary professor, Ray Ortland Jr., whom I love and who really does a great job at the book of Isaiah. Our two main points are actually questions. Why does God put up with us? And how does God work with us? Why does God put up with us? You know, this first section describes who his people are. You know, my father, he's passed away, but he used to, to live with, with my family for a bit. And I used to test his hearing every now and then because he like claimed he had like horrible hearing, something about being in the army in a cannon cocker at Fort Sill. But I would say, hey, Pops, are you hungry? And he would say, what? And then I wouldn't raise my voice any louder. I'd say, hey, Pops, are you hungry? He would say, oh, no, thank you. At least not yet. My dad could hear. He just didn't hear. The word hear in its variants appears 10 times in these 22 verses. God speaks of his people's tendency to hear without really hearing. Does that strike close to home? God says, hear me. No, no, no. Hear me. 
So the first reality we must look at is that we don't hear God well. Verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now, the simplest lesson from this is that God speaks, and it's our part to listen and obey. A heart of faith listens to God and obeys him, right? But we need to peel back the layers here. And when we do, we're going to see that this is a nation, not with a heart of faith that listens, but rather with a a nominal faith that tends to ignore. But they are God's people. He calls them the house of Jacob, who are called by the name Israel. They swear by God and confess that they believe in God, but there's a big but, but not in truth or right. Their profession of faith is insincere. It's neither truthful nor righteous. They've been taking God and his blessings for granted. A nominal Christian lives a similar life. They believe in God, but the God they believe in is a small God, and they presume upon his grace. And so listen, here's the outcome. Listen, a nominal Christian isn't living life with eager expectation that the Lord of hosts is on the move. They aren't on the lookout for God to surprise them to answer prayer, to lead them beside still waters. No nominal Christians think they've got God already figured out, and they are confident that they themselves don't need much changing, but they're good at finding fault in others. Nominal Christians, listen, sadly, do not look like Christ, nor act like him, which is why so many non-Christians Roll their eyes. That's what verses 1 and 2 are about. Verses 3 through 5 show us that God actually is not defeated when his people don't live by real faith. See, every step along the way, he, God, has been faithful to his promises in spite of us, not because of us. Verses 3 through 5. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old, before they came to pass. I announced them to you. Why? Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. God says here, he says, I told you in advance how I would bless you so that when the blessing came, you couldn't say it was me, not God. Nominal Christians experience blessing from God, but they often don't even notice because they think God had no hand in the little things, the little things of life that make us happy. They experience blessings, but they are obstinate, as verse 4 depicts. I know that you're obstinate in your neck. It's a stiff neck. It's an iron sinew, and your forehead is brass. I can't get through that. That's what he's saying. 
In other words, they were opinionated, self-assured know-it-alls. Oh, they sang the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings fall. They sang it. But their tongues were not connected to hearts full of grace. And so they experienced blessings from God, but, but they think they are the ones who brought their blessings into existence. But they're idols of hard work, you know. Whatever it was, that's what got it. I'm smart. That's how I got my blessings. Many Christians feel that way too. But maybe God gave you smarts. Maybe God gave you a good work ethic. So in verses 3 to 5, God looks back to former things. Now in verses 6 to 8, he looks forward to new things. Listen, lean in, hear this. What is God going to promise such obstinate, nominal, grace-hoarding people. What do you think's coming their way? God is going to give them more grace. You heard that right. God is going to give his people more grace. That's what verse 6 through 8 is about. The ancient church there, he's giving them grace. Now, he's going to tell them enough of what's coming so that they, by faith, can expect it, but not too much, lest they stop trusting God. Verses 6 through 8, you have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you've not known. They're created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you've never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. Grace to rebels. I like how Ortland explains why God is promising them great blessings, but won't tell them any specific details. God intends to keep on surprising us because we can't be trusted with full disclosure of his plans. We'd end up saying, oh, sure, I saw it coming. Verse 7. Isn't that the way we are? We don't like uncertainty. We don't like feeling helpless. If only we could see into the future. But would that really be good for us? What if God did tell us everything in advance? What would we do with it? We wouldn't lean on him moment by moment. We'd soon think we could take control. And in verse 8, Isaiah calls that bent in our heart, rebellion. God tells us enough in advance here in the Bible so that we have something to trust him for, but not so much that we can ignore him along the way. In the end, he keeps leading us along, even when our thoughts treat him more like a problem than a joy. And so by now we have to be thinking then, so why? Why does God love us so much? Why does he put up with us? Verse 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. 
For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may, may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Herein lies the crux of the matter. Why does God do anything? And therefore, why does he put up with us so? It's all for his glory. It's not about you. It's about him. God put up with ancient Israel. And even when he put them into Babylon, into that refining fire, he limited their affliction there. It could have been far worse. That's what he's saying in this passage. And if you recall, he called them to, to build homes, to, to settle in, to get married, actually bless that city. God put up with them. And God puts up with us. And the ultimate reason why God treats us so well is for his own sake. My glory I will give to another, he says in verse 11. Listen, just try to wrap your heads around these words. Not only does our performance not secure us God's favor, it's our lousy performance that God uses to display his favor. He loves us for reasons that make sense only within the logic of the divine nature. He loves us with what seems to us like one windfall of mercy after another. God must love this kind of love because he calls it his glory. Now, some may skeptically say, you know, why is God so consumed with his own glory? Is, like, is he like a narcissist or something, right? But let's just think this through. When we see cocky young athletes, maybe tonight at the Super Bowl game, run into the end zone and tout their own glory, you know, the older you get, the more you roll your eyes. Why? Because before there was Mahomes, there was Manning. Peyton, not Eli. Before there was Manning, there was Favre, and before there was Favre, there was Montana. You get the point. Glorying in oneself is a rebukable vanity, but not so with God. Why? See, it's really quite simple. God is not like us humans. There is no one greater. That's what verses 12 and 13 remind us. Uh, God's people with. Verse 12 and 13. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I'm the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Just spend some time thinking about this. There is nothing greater than God. God is at the top of the glory pyramid. And so think this through. If God does not delight in his own glory and promote the display of his own glory, then there must by default be something more glorious than God and worthy of praise. But there is nothing. And since there is no greater glory, God is right to delight 
in his own goodness. And he's also right to call out into creation to say, look at me, I am good and glorious. Listen, in the Ten Commandments, it's a good thing when God says, you shall have no other gods than me. God is loving you when he says that. There's no greater glory than the Lord, and he is right to promote it. You know, one of the ways in which we see his glory is in how his love and his mercy triumphs over his people's persistent sin. God's grace gets the last word, and the last word glorifies his name. Do you see why he doesn't kick you to the curb? It's not about you and your failings. About, it's about him and his glory. And so because of this persistent, unfailing love that God has for sinners, because it magnifies his glory, you can have confidence he will never kick you to the curb if you are in Christ. And listen, God doesn't say, behold my glory as I spike this football in the end zone, do a Lambo leap or something. No, he says, behold my glory in my son. See my mercy towards you in him. See how he is humble before you. Behold his cross. See my glorious grace in the most obscure place you would think you would find it in glory in me. And so if you are a genuine Christian, you've trusted in Christ, but you're living a nominal Christian life, guess what? Your lukewarm living actually brings glory to God. Because in the cross, God's love, his love continues to you. And this magnifies his glory. Does this make sense? Now, also, if this does make sense, then let this reality change you. Ask yourself, if God loves me despite my spiritual laziness and his grace is mine for all of my failings, then how on earth can I ever again take the grace of God in vain? I will sing the doxology with a tongue that's connected to a heart full of grace and joy. By the way, at the end of our service, we get to sing the doxology together. It's no accident. So why did God put up with us for his glory? Now for our second point, how does God work with us? Well, the second half of the chapter 48 applies the truth we just covered. And Isaiah shows us four assurances. The first assurance is, God will never fail to be God. You know, God is never forced into anything, and God is free to be on the move in any way he sees fit, including allowing you to go through a refining fire process. The ancient people, listen, they were balking at the idea that God would spit them out of the land and send them to be exiles in Babylon. That, that God would even then, like, plan for a deliverer who was, like, 
some foreign king, Cyrus of Persia, who hadn't even been born yet. No, they didn't like that idea at all. But that's what God describes in verses 14 through 15. Assemble all of you and listen. There it is. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. Who's the him? Cyrus, king of Persia. He, Cyrus, shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him, Cyrus. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his ways. The ancient nominal believers were confident that God would surely never kick his people out of the promised land. God wouldn't allow himself to look bad like that. I mean, his people enduring a complete, utter loss? God would never do that. But even if he did, you know, we'd find our own way back. We're pretty capable. We don't need some crazy foreigner. That is how nominal Christians think. They think, well, I know I might take God's grace for granted a bit, but come on, he can't kick me to the curb. I'm good. I'll take care of myself. These few verses say otherwise. God wants us to start seeing that he will bring unwelcome experiences into our lives so that we can start listening to him and crying out for his presence and for his help. God will never fail to be God in this way. We can be sure assured of that. The second assurance is this. Even in our unwelcome experiences, Christ is present. We see this in verse 16. Draw near to me. Hear this, from the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, listen, I have been there. And now the Lord of God has sent me and his spirit. God is saying that he has perfectly telegraphed his worldwide moves of redemption and grace. I have not spoken in secret. Have in mind here God's promises to Abraham, to Jacob, uh, to Moses, to, to his people, to David, and yes, to you and to me. None of his plans were in secret. We just needed to kind of see how they unfolded in whatever particular way God would unfold them. And God says he has been with his wayward people all the way. From the time it came to be, I have been there. God wants us to hear that he's always with us. Now, Verse 16 needs a little clarification because at the end it says, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Who's speaking here? It's not Isaiah. That wouldn't make sense. And it's not Cyrus either. Who is it? Well, it's the servant of the Lord from back in chapter 42. Remember, it's one big scroll. The servant of the Lord is the messianic hero of the book of Isaiah. And guess what? Next week, our passage opens with what? the servant of the Lord. So it's no surprise he's speaking of the servant of the Lord here. Isaiah looks beyond Cyrus to the perfect Savior, conqueror, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the faithful servant of the Lord who battles not with sword but with the Holy Spirit. And so in verses 14 through 16, they, these verses tell us that even in our unwanted experiences that God orchestrates in our lives, Christ is present. 
And so in our God-given trials, we have to stop thinking we're, we're all alone because God messed up or something. We need to start asking, where's the Lord in all this? So the second assurance is that even in our unwelcomed experiences, Christ is present. The third assurance of, is this. In all the turbulence of life, God is teaching us and he is leading us forward. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. What does God teach us and where could he perhaps be leading us? God says he teaches us to profit. This is not financial gain. He teaches us to understand, listen, what really matters. I like what Ortland says here. He opens up to us the real treasures of life. He awakens in us a willingness to gladly suffer the loss of all things in order to gain Christ. And that's the way we should go. Only a Redeemer, the Holy One, would take us there. You know, one of the areas in which God teaches us to profit is in marriage. Right now in Grace Church, there's a number of marriages that are struggling. They started out with happiness and hopefulness, but now they're characterized by resentment and anger. Our passage is saying that the Lord is in the midst of your marriage, and he wants you to profit from his teaching. And so please stop keeping a record of how the other fails to live up to your expectations. Stop feeling sorry for how your dreams aren't coming true and start looking to Christ. See how in his unconditional love, he died for the unlovely, you. See the Lord is taking us somewhere. Where could he be taking you? a place where you can know more fully what his love looks like. Listen, and this is true for everybody. God isn't just content for you to receive his unconditional, costly love. He wants you to profit from it so that you too can love this way. That is where Jesus wants to take you. The question is, will you let Jesus take you where you need to go? Nominal Christians say, that's a bridge too far. I'm not that bad. Oh, they're happy if their spouses change. They're happy if their spouses just kind of leave them alone. But those who are stirred by God's grace, they say, Take me on this journey, Jesus, lest I die. See, there's a lot on the line. For the lessons we need to learn, they're not guaranteed. When we say no to God, when we say we don't want to become the people he's calling us to be, it has consequences. We see this in verses 18 through 19. 
Here God laments, right? He laments when his people fail to profit from his teaching and therefore miss out on his blessing. This breaks God's heart, okay? Verse 18 and 19. Oh, that you paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. What do these verses say? That the love of God does not shield you from the immediate impact of your sin. Are you an angry Christian? Guess what? God loves you. But if you lash out at your spouse, don't be surprised if your sin results in a marriage that suffers. So too, if you find it hard to forgive, you just don't forgive your spouse with the same forgiveness that Christ has forgiven you unless they clean up their act first. Well, don't be surprised when your marriage lacks the peace of God. These words of Isaiah are a warning to get off of our nominal Christian couches and start take, and stop taking God's grace for granted and start believing that God desires to teach you to profit so that your life can manifest the radical happiness that is found in the goodness of God. And so what is our path forward if we would but listen? The next verses bring this chapter to a climax. How is the nation to respond to their captivity in Babylon? Verses 20 and 21. Go out from Babylon. In other words, when this day comes, don't stay there. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And by the way, they did not thirst when he, God, led them through the desert. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. What is it that these final verses give us assurance of? They assure us that God is a good Savior. Wherever he leads us and however he leads us, he's a good Savior. How does God say this? Well, the second part of that little verse there is like God reminds his people in verse 21 of how he, in years past, brought them out of Egypt through deserts and wilderness and all along the way he provided for them. He gave them water to drink. God wants them to be assured that when it's time to leave Babylon, he's going to be there for them, to lead them out of the way. But will they go when they have a chance? That's the big question. See, the temptation is to stay where they've laid down roots, even if it's not the promised land. And so what is God saying? Portland writes, there comes the moment when every one of us must decide, will we settle down in Babylon of this world or venture out in the redemption in Christ? As in the exodus out of Egypt, God is calling us to the adventure of faith he promises to satisfy our thirst all along the way. He can split a rock so that water gushes out. In fact, he even knows how to nail a perfect man to a cross so that mercy gushes out. That is something to shout about, says Isaiah. 
but we all have to make up our own mind. Will, will God coax you out into a life of pilgrimage only to abandon you? Or can God make such bless, blessings gush out upon you anywhere he leads? But there's a deal breaker. It's what Isaiah ends with. Verse 22. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Listen. It's a wicked thing to say no to the grace of God. Why? Well, if God's grace towards sinners is meant to magnify God's glory, then saying no to God's grace is a refusal that denies the very nature of God. Does that make sense? Well, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, how will we respond to the glory of God and His grace towards us? Will you experience the utmost confidence of God's love towards you? Will you delight that the reason why God will never kick His own to the curb is bound up in the glory of his grace towards us? Will you confidently trust God to be with you no matter where he takes you? Will you step out over the line from nominal resistance to faith-filled trust? Will you move on from refusing to hear God to a longing to listen? Christian, because your salvation is bound up in the glory of God, you may have utmost confidence in his love for you. Let's pray. Father, you must have some alien kind of love. A love that doesn't make sense to us. We love based on conditions. We love based upon what someone has done for me lately. Oh, we'll put up with those in our family. But do we really, do we really love well those outside of our family? Do we? You have a, a beautiful love, a love that is not wrapped up in how we act towards you, but it's a love that flows out of your glory. May that give us confidence today not to sit on our couches of spiritual disease, but rather that we may walk with great confidence that you are leading us somewhere. Lord Jesus, amen.